Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everyone. This is Histories of the Unexpected. He's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. And he is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. And we are your hosts for Histories of the Unexpected, in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has a history. Like blood, or the itch, or the study, or the signature, which is all about Henry VIII. And power. Well, the smile, that's all about the French Revolution. The hand is about medieval kings and the curing of scrofula. Mmm, smoke's all about smuggling. The paperclip is all about the Stasi. Well, it's an enormously fun thing to do, and we are going to be live at the London Podcast Festival at 9.30pm on the 15th of September 2017, and it's at King's Place, Hall 2, near King's Cross. Come and see us. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 48 of Histories of the Unexpected, where we will be audio googling through history, exploring the history of things that you didn't even know had a significant story to tell, like wine, beans and bears. For me, it was the lean, the bean and the spleen. (laughs) And we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how everything, simply everything, has a history and crucially how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of shadows is in fact all about darkness, demons and witchcraft? It's Mm. all very exciting. Or that the history of chalk is all about moments frozen in time. It's about Neolithic earthworks. It's about national identity. It's about history from below. It's subversive writing. In fact, it's all about secret history below the radar. That's a lot from Chalk. The man sitting opposite me is the Aladdin of the Annals. It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. And I have promoted you today. The man Mm. sitting opposite me is the papal legate of Mm. legacies. It is the famous historical adventurer, the truly wonderful Dr. Sam Willis. Thank you. Together we will be piloting you on this uncharted and frankly highly dangerous flight into the past. Each week one of us takes the lead and this week it's my turn. Now this week what I wanted to do was essentially be historians of ourselves. So we're going to go back to one of our previous episodes. We did the signature live at Plymouth. Do you remember that? I do remember that very well. It was good fun and um, we're doing the signature part two. Yes. And if you missed the first signature, you can catch it on iTunes or Google Play at the very reasonable price of 99 pence. Yeah. 99 pence, less than a pound. And you should come to one of our live events, which are amazing. Anyway, here we go. The signature part two. 
So this episode is going to be on the signature, but as historians, we're kind of going back in time because we've already done one on the signature. But um, we've both been writing this summer. We've been writing a book. Histories of the Unexpected. Yes, it's coming. It will count. It will be in your Christmas stockings <laughs> in December 2018, we promise. Uh, but this means we've been going back over a lot of the subjects we've done before, which we kind of use as inspiration. And uh, we decided to do an update on the signature because we've come across some wonderful stuff, haven't we? Yep. And if you didn't catch the first signature, uh, you can download it online. Uh, it's 99p and it's on all sorts of platforms, isn't it? Google Play and iTunes. Uh, it's very exciting. Uh, it also includes uh, something on clocks yeah. as well. It was a special event that we did live at Plymouth University. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to be updating on the signature for you this morning. And Sam, you found something absolutely fascinating in your trawls through the archives this summer i did um so what on earth have you got there that is a sailor's round robin from the 1620s and what i've got me really interested into this was when you were talking in our previous episode about the signature about the significance of where you sign a document oh. and i remember you talking yes. about um basically groveling by signing down the, yeah. the bottom right hand side of a paper that was yeah, tudor yeah. groveling wasn't it yes um tudor and stuart groveling yeah what was that about how does that so the way the way that that works is it's all about the importance of significant space. If you imagine the layout of a manuscript page or imagine you're writing a letter, you've got an A4 sheet in front of you, you write the main body of the letter and then you decide that you are going to write your signature in the bottom right-hand corner. Letter writing manuals from the period dictated that this was a way of showing deference. Um so you could grovel. So if you think about all those sort of people that fell out with Elizabeth I, for example, the Earl of Essex or Walter Rawley, um, you know, they all wrote groveling letters to the Queen. Does that kind of exactly affect the, this? Also this affect the, the size of your signature as well. Like if you're saying I am Sam Willis, would you sign in big letters? And if you're if you're really really bad and you're about to be decapitated, you'd be like I'm Sam Willis. <laughs> if you were Queen Elizabeth, you you have a very elaborate a very very elaborate signature. And Henry, as well. and, and and Henry. What's also interesting though is also the placement of signatures when there are multiple signatures. And what you've got there is a whole series of signatures. Okay, so so this is a sailor's round robin, um, and it dates from the 1620s. Now. What's great about this is it's basically the opposite of what we now do as signing on the dotted line. So if you sign on the dotted line, you're sort of saying, this is me, I signed this document, I'm proud to be signing this document. Now, this raises all sorts of interesting issues. If you're complaining, uh, which is essentially what they're doing here, this is a kind of communal letter of dissatisfaction with the superiors in the Royal Navy. And so this essentially is they're signing their own uh, it's it's proof of mutiny in many respects. They are saying we are not happy with the way our ship has been run for whatever reasons, whether it can be too much um, sort of uh, uh, nasty discipline, being beaten too much. In this respect, they're upset because they haven't been paid and they've run out of food. So they're starving yep. and, and they're impoverished. And it means that the Navy has not been, um, you know, following its contractual obligations, essentially. I've never seen anything like this. So it's a, it, it is a round piece of paper in the middle of it. Um, uh, so it should be turned that way. It so it's like a, kind it of horizontal like a paper plate. It looks like a paper plate. Yes, yeah. it looks like a doily. Yeah. Um, in the in the except the pattern is made by handwriting <laughs> rather than lace. And it's been um, folded, hasn't it? It Has been folded to be stored. So in the middle, you have the the, the problem they're unhappy with. And they've written a kind of um, 
well, it's actually it's in it's in um it's in rhyme. Oh, which is completely oh, captain to your words. We all give ear, but they unpleasing seem as we do hear. If that our allowance we receive not duly, and also staying here we vittle newly. <laughs> How that? The ships shall ride whilst cables they be rotten, so long we are where victuals may be gotten, unto which saying we will all apply before we'll yield, we one and all will die. God bless the king and send him long to reign. And then uh, so there's there are 76 there. signatures in a circle all around this thing. So they're basically saying, look, it's really unfair and we're going to do it in quite a nice way. They're doing it in in, um, in rhyme. And then they sign in a circle around that. So the point of signing in a circle is you can't, you don't know who signed first. And that means you can't identify the ringleader yeah. because essentially this is, well, technically this is mutiny and the punishment for mutiny is is death, is hanging. Um and so, you know, there's a really interesting history here with, with sort of between the lines of, of law and what's acceptable and, and how things will be, will be punished and dealt with. Um, so even though technically you can be hanged for mutiny, in, in reality, the Navy would respond to mm. reasonable requests like this. And they came up with the idea of doing reasonable requests by signing in a circle. That is incredible. I mean, it's a it's a form of petition. Yeah. So you'd find you'd find a lot of letters like this from the period that would. But it's be, a bit of a groveling petition. It's a really it's a really. I mean, petitions are incredibly groveling. Yeah. There's a sort of rhetoric of real sort of deference and submissive, you know, submissiveness throughout it. But th this is extraordinary. Um, I think what's also what's also interesting about it, looking at them. Um, basically signing it in a circle like that. It also means that not only can you not identify the ringleader, but also there's no sort of social hierarchical differentiation. If you have a look at Privy Council letters, so, so Privy Council letters from the 16th and 17th century where all the Privy Councillors um, sign their names, they all sign it in order of social hierarchy. So mm. the most important goes at the top. And there's a famous example where the Earl of Essex signed above the, the Lord Admiral. Uh, and then the Lord Admiral apparently took a knife and sliced <laughs> it out so that, <laughs> so that Essex wasn't above him. But yeah, absolutely extraordinary. Now, the, the, the broader question here, of course, is, is why these these seem to start appear appearing in the 1620s. Um, so if we think about to to well, particularly in the navy, this is uh, this is particularly yeah, in relation yeah, to the navy. Yeah. So it's all to do with the growth and strength of of British naval power. Yeah. So by the 1620s, the 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 Royal Navy has been a permanent institution for ninety or so. Yep. years Tudor Navy so yep. it's established by Henry yep. VIII and and the key thing was that he he so he, he inherited very few ships by the end of his reign he had about 150 yeah um and he'd also established the um kind of the the, the basic bones of a naval infrastructure yeah um and he did very well uh Elizabeth spent a lot of money on her Navy um and it all went wrong after Elizabeth's death so this is 1620 right okay so we're into the Stuarts yep. now. James. Uh, we're yep. into James. And w what's fascinating about this period is that I think when people think about the strength of British naval power, they assume it was kind of strong all the time, which of course is not true. And, and this is one of the absolute pits of 
British naval power. But interestingly, what's going on here is that if you think about it in relation to other navies in Europe at the time, there are other powers going up and down. The Dutch in this period are really, really getting strong. Amazing ships. Amazing ships. And also the Swedish. Swedish, yeah. Ah, and I, I introduced yeah, yeah. this because I know you've just been on holiday in Sweden. Yes, I've been on holiday in Sweden and we visited the Vasa Museum, yeah. which is without doubt the best museum I have ever been to. The whole conceit of the museum is that it is built around the Vasa warship, this incredible warship um, that was one of the grandest warships built in this period, built by uh, an, a hero of mine, Gustavus Adolphus, uh, King of Sweden, uh, who's responsible for the rise of Sweden as a great power. Mm. And, you know, he, he brings in top shipbuilders to build this it, you'll know far more about the sort of technicalities of it but it's a sort of double row of cannons it's about 64 it's beautiful it's got completely cannons. covered in the most extraordinary carvings it's, and, it's and it sank amazing. on its maiden it voyage sank on its maiden voyage literally meters yeah. outside of stockholm Gutted. Harbor. Uh, absolutely <laughs> awful. awful i mean basically it just keeled over yeah. it was far too it was far too heavy top, far too top heavy mm. uh, far too many guns on it it keeled over. Uh, people died. People drowned. It was it was um, salvaged in the fifties and sixties, and it is now it has now been restored in its full glory. Well, I mean, not full glory, but in incredible glory in this purpose built museum on by the water in Stockholm. And there is also an array of artifacts that have come out of it. So this, you can tell not only the naval history, but also you can tell the history of the salvaging. You can tell the, the history of everyday life through the ship. Absolutely extraordinary. So here's the interesting thing. So um, yeah. in Sweden, the Swedish Navy in 1610, so 10 years before this uh, petition was signed, yeah. the Swedish Navy was twice the size of the Royal Navy. Goodness me. Not only that, but the the line of battle as we know it the kind of the the, the the way that these huge sailing warships were sailed and fought in the height of the age of sail in the 18th century was developed in the baltic mm. in this period it isn't something that was developed by the french and the spanish or the british um it was it was a purely baltic northeastern Invention, invention of northeastern sea power, which very few people know. I mean, essentially, the problem is you've got the kind of the great Carracks of Henry VIII's time, and then you have the much sort of uh, uh, faster, faster ships of Elizabeth's time, the kind that um, Drake sailed around the world in. Um, but they were still really kind of prototypes of the great. 18th century warship, but they really started coming together in the 1620s uh, and also to the Baltic. So there is a really fascinating link with Baltic sea power in this period. Um, and also the 1620s, we, we have this, this other wonderful link with Spain. Don't we? So, so we, we certainly do. We, we, yeah, it's the <laughs> it's the opposite of of what had gone up before in Elizabeth's time. We got the Armada and the Spanish are trying yeah. to yeah. trying to invade. But there's this this attempt between James to try and try and ally himself with um with the spanish yeah by marrying uh charles his son yep. to the to, daughter of, yep. uh, of philip yep. the infanta yeah yeah um now what was interesting about that is they, they send this amazing naval delegation to to spain with charles on board and the ships look amazing they're the most elaborate beautiful ships the english version of the vast you were describing yep. but inside they're rotten 
the men are starving, the men are not being paid. Um, it is it is a complete display of I sea power. I see where you're coming back now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. brilliant. It is brilliant. a complete display of sea power. So so when you look at a lot of the the images of of, of the ships from the period, um, you know, 1620 to 1650, they're absolutely magnificent. And they have the kind of carvings, I mean, you can't believe is is possible or sensible on a warship. And it's interesting that the vast, the Swedish guys got it wrong and it sank. But the, the English could make ships. Yeah. But what they couldn't do is make ships like that, but also man them and operate them. And there, it, it was an amazing period where the, the the kind of the naval ambition utterly outreached the um, the the kind of the available infrastructure. Mm. So they mm. thought, oh, the ships are great. We're going to use ships. We're going to go on these huge kind of massive delegations to to Spain and be as impressive as we can. Mm. But the people who really knew what was going on realised it was it was you know um, it was a hollow vessel, essentially. It was which led to them writing writing these letters, which led to them writing and, and, these and, circular and letters. So the there one, you go. That the is why it's all about James. Anyway, no, it's not the point. The, the real point, of course, is they want to carry on making ships like this. Charles loves it. Charles remembers going to Spain in this amazing naval procession. So when he becomes king, he carries on making ships, but he hasn't got the money. So he raises something called the ship, ship money, money tax, yes. oh. which, which annoys everyone and leads to the civil war. We should do. <laughs> we should do the a podcast on ships. We should. Well, I, do, do you know? I, anything, I could do, do you know, one. Do you know anything about ships? <laughs> and um, so that is why the signature is all about. Ships, no, and it's all about the Civil War, the yes. English Civil War, Excellent. and uh, Sweden. Before we get, I'm going to, I'm going to take us in a, in a different direction with signatures, um, but before we do, the Vasa, yes. why the Vasa sank, this was something that completely puzzled me. Why spend all this money um, hiring the top shipbuilders? <laughs> why on earth did? I mean, is it Gustavus Adolphus just being too? You know, too ambitious, wanting too big a ship. Yeah. I, I don't know the details of it, but, but right? something catastrophic happened. Yes, <laughs> quite yes. clearly. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, but actually, it says to me, it says a great deal about... Um, so, so I said that the Swedish Navy was twice the size of the Royal Navy, yeah. which is true, but it also means that they've grown their Navy very, very, very quickly. Yes. And yes. they've grown from nothing. Yeah. So, Well, not nothing, but, but from, from they haven't got the kind of um, foundations that we have uh, yeah. uh, under Henry VIII. Because yeah. Henry VIII was also um, building on people like Henry V, who also had a, had a powerful navy. Yeah. Um, so I, I suspect that they are they are too ambitious for their capabilities. That, you know, it, it's a bit like James the First, actually, isn't it? James First and James the Sixth with his problems. Yeah. So yeah. they they're kind of caught up in this whirlwind of wanting to have these magnificent ships. And it's the time but to of the, the extent of actually of actually and, understanding yeah. what's going on. So I think there is definitely a. A, a lack of understanding of how the bigger ships actually needed to be built and sailed and stowed. It's all to do with stowage and ballast. Yeah, yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's it's much like the Mary Rose. So so people often look at the the, the sinking of the Mary Rose, saying that is an example of English naval failure. weren't weren't we rubbish at that period? Mm. But and Henry had 150 ships in his navy, and the Mary Rose sank as one ship. Yeah. Um. The Vasa Vasa is an is one ship out of an enormous yeah. navy, yeah. and all the others yeah. didn't sink. Yeah. So it yeah. was a, it is an isolated problem, yeah. and it's all to do with the culture and the specific circumstances of that event, rather than. Than I think uh, making much broader uh, broader points about the navy. Okay, okay. I think that's put that to rest. For I me. think it has. I'm sure we will. You get, probably don't want we any will, more. We will you. get. We will get Twitter <laughs> Twitter action on this. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices. Down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. 
Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I want to take us to uh, Lady Jane Grey now. Uh, I've just been last week doing some filming uh, with the wonderful Helen Castor uh, for a new three-part BBC documentary she's doing on Lady Jane Grey. And they asked me to come along and talk about letters uh, since uh, I have made a career uh, out of <laughs> out of letters. Mm. Uh, my first book was on Tudor women letter writers. Yep. Um, so I know a little bit about that. But um, so Lady Jane Grey... Um, is uh, pro- incredibly well known, the Nine Day Queen. Yeah. So this um, I, I, is it after Mary? I'm always no, confused. she's before she's before Mary. After so, so basically, she is the cousin, first cousin once removed of Edward the Sixth. Yeah. Uh, she is the um, Henry the Eighth is her uncle. Uh, her grandfather is Henry the Seventh mm-hmm. through his daughter uh, Mary, who is Henry the Eighth. Um, sister, and um, basically the Duke of Northumberland marries her off to his son. Um, when um, when Edward dies, um, there's fear that if um, Mary takes over, um, there's going to be a return to Catholicism after Henry VIII's sort of severance with 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 Rome and the reformist reformation that we have under Edward the Sixth. What's her signature like, James? Uh, we'll, we'll get we'll get to her signature. So basically we've got so basically we've got her um I I mean I I can't but see her as a complete political pawn. Yes. You know, she's sixteen, seventeen years old. Mm-hmm. Uh she lasts for nine days and then is executed yeah. afterwards um, for, for treason. So she's basically put up there. And she knows um, it's coming, doesn't she? And she's she, properly she, oh, aware oh, of what's she's happening. Proper, she properly knows what's coming. I yeah. mean, she's locked up in the tower. She writes letters. So what I was asked to go in and, and talk about was was her letters. And what is... What, is, what was this for, Quilly? What was this, for, for BBC, BBC Four, yep. for a, a, a new three-part documentary on Lady Jane Grey. Presented by, Presented Helen, the by Helen, Helen, Helen Gaster. Gaster. Everyone yeah, put exactly. that on your recording box. Yes, it, it, it will be brilliant. Um, the extraordinary thing about her, back to the signature, is that her signature 
doesn't survive in many places. Really? Really. So so it's actually... Do, do we know what it's like? So we, we do know. We do know. And I've got examples of it. But what we've got is a sort of... a ha She's one of these sort of murky figures. We know a lot about her because it's a scandal. You know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a crisis. What's extraordinary about it is that there was a period when it seemed that it was going to be successful. And right, Mary right, right. is completely isolated. Mary goes off to Framlingham Castle in Norfolk. And what you see over that nine-day period is a slow accretion of supporters back to, to Mary. And Mary's able to sort of gather her forces and and you know and reclaim the crown. But it's touch and go for a for a for a significant period. But we have a sort of a small handful of documents that survive. I think there are about 13 documents that survive, three of which are written when she's queen. So basically, they're formal instruments. We've got uh, an early letter to Thomas, Sir Thomas Seymour, who marries Catherine Parr, who's the uncle of Edward VI, uh, which I'll talk about in a little bit. We've got three Latin letters to the Swiss uh, reformer, uh, Henry Bullinger. Um, and then we've got um, a letter to a friend. We've got a letter to Mary explaining uh, her, Jane Grey's role in in the sort of aftermath of of Edward the death and what happens. We've then got a series of farewell letters to her sister, to the lieutenant of the tower, and to her father. And these are written in her Greek Testament and her prayer book. And there's been some sort of doubt about whether they are actually authentic. So I think we've got a series of we've got a series of signatures here. And this was the letter that I was really asked to look at. This one, if I can find it somewhere here. This one. This is uh, to Thomas Seymour. Um, and she's in, she's in his household. And you can see down here that um, you've got the little, you've got the little, um, you've got the little signature here in italic. Yeah. Um, your most bound, your, your, your most, um, servant during her life Jane Grey so uh, your most bound servant during her life Jane Grey and what's significant about this is that basically what we're talking about here are um what we talk what we were talking about earlier on about the significant space is that she's putting this she's written this at, at 11 years old um, she's written, she squashed her signature down here. So we've got the deferential it's like she's signature. She's shut her eyes and it's like, she's oh no, <laughs> I'm pleased. I don't but, want to sign but this. But she's, she's signing in italic, which is a, which is a, a formal, um, scholarly hand that's coming out of, um, the, out of, um, humanist educational, uh, work coming out of, of northern Italy. Um, so she, and it's, it's a hand that is taught to a series of high-profile royal and aristocratic and court women. It's a time when we see the likes of Princess Elizabeth, who becomes Elizabeth I, Mary Tudor, so who becomes Mary I, uh, and a series of other girl, a series of other girls at court, like Margaret Roper, the daughter of, of, um, Thomas More, for example, all receiving these very sort of, um, brilliant classical educations they're rather like rather like boys are uh, having so they're being taught latin greek she's got hebrew she's got italian you know so lady jane gray is basically being trained up at a very early age to be somebody of influence mm -hmm. to take the reins of power and what it does is it connects education women's education in particular 
and this kind of classical tradition of education and female power and female rule. So what this suggests is that from a very early age, her family knew exactly what they were doing. Uh, it's the same with, with Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn, yeah. when she's educated, Anne Boleyn is educated over uh, on the continent in, in, in France. In, in France. Yeah. Uh, she's being educated in French, which is the language of the court. She's being taught to write letters uh, in French. So she's being, you know, she's being skilled up mm. in this way. But if you read this well, letter... Just, just go to this bit, because I actually quite like this quickly as well. The uh, age 11 years, perhaps this is the earliest autograph of yeah. hers in existence. Is, yeah. that, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. This so, is the, but that's 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 an 18th century. What we've got there is 19th century, a 19th, 19th century curator's hand um, who scribbled to, on the who's, letter. Who's scribbled? Oh, there's and, and if you have a look here, the stamp uh, from the state paper office is nearly on the, the over the, the signature. The, 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 the state archives yeah. is almost over the signature. Yeah, but you know that brings into this question of signatures having history. So so somewhere. I don't know where it is. It's my earliest signature on something. I don't know what it is. Probably but, a bank. When you opened a bank account. Yeah, I certainly remember. It will be somewhere trying it, but um, I'd love to see it. What about? Let, what about? Uh, tell you where, where it would end up. School books. Have you? Have you? Have you kept oh, your true. early tech? Yes. Exercise books. My, sorry, my mum and dad have. If you it's, go back to those, you will find pen trails. You'll find examples of your signature hmm. over it. There's another letter that I want to to talk to you briefly about here. This is this is a, a letter when she's aged eleven. It, as I said, it's in an italic script. It's showing that she's able to write letters. It's showing that she knows how to place the signature. It's gearing her up for for rule. What we've got here is another letter. Um, this is a letter when she is queen. Okay. And this is a letter to the sheriffs and justices of the peace. Uh, this is so in, six years in, or so after sorry, that one. Yeah? So six years or so after, after it. It's written by a, by a secretary. So it's a business letter. And basically what it is, when, when Mary goes off to, to Norfolk, Jane Grey writes this to the people in Surrey. This survives in the Lowesley manuscripts, which survive in, in Surrey. Um, it's basically saying, stay loyal to me. Um, but what's interesting here is, as I said, this is all written in a, in a formal secretary hand, so by a, by a scribe. Um, but at the top, you see Jane the Queen mm. in her, in what looks like an italic hand. Now, there is some debate as to whether this is in fact her signature yeah. or whether it is a sign manual. So remember when we talked about, when we did signatures before, we talked about the dry stamp and the wet stamp yep. for Henry VIII, which was basically the the way in which you put his signature on. The debate here, and certainly when I was talking to Helen Castor about this, she argued that probably they didn't have time to make a formal stamp for Jane Grey. Um, everything happened too quickly. So this is probably another example of her signature hmm. but it's all about it's all about the signature is all about power yeah and also with, I, I love this personal timeline of the signature so her signature has then changed again because she's become queen yeah finally yes what i'd like to talk about do you remember when we did chalk valley yeah this summer the chalk valley history festival chalk valley history and we festival. did chalk and valleys which you can listen to live it, on had, it came out last last week or mm. so it was uh, one of the so most enjoyable ones I've done. It was, it was brilliant. Yeah. And I, I, I couldn't talk about flint mines. I think I ran out of time, which was we, really we annoying. Had, we only had an hour, 
And I think after 40 minutes, we had only just done chalk and <laughs> valleys in, in 20 minutes. I've never seen a more confused crowd in my life. I think they, I think they, were, they were expecting think a, they a lecture on the chalk valley. <laughs> I know. And we talked to them about blackboards okay. and the prehistory of chalk. But I, we talked about that. But then we also did one of your history masterclasses. Mm. Uh, and we did a paleography session yeah. where we talked about Henry VIII. And you've just done, with Susanna Lipscomb, you've just done a masterclass on Henry VIII, haven't you? So that was one of our history masterclasses. Have a look at thehistorymasterclass.com if you're interested. And we've just done Henry VIII in Love and War. And it was a, we did it at the York Minster Library. It was one of the most amazing places I've ever been. Uh, it's incredible, isn't it's it? It's the old uh, the, the old bishop's palace, and it was it was turned into a library, and um, we took over the whole place and gave everyone a Tudor a Tudor masterclass. So graphology is where I'm going with this, which is what exactly that's the it's a study of handwriting, it's the science of of handwriting. So basically, the the, the idea behind it, which is, is nonsense, that, is that you absolute <laughs> absolute absolute it is absolute it is total and utter nonsense. Yeah, um, the the. If you if you're interested in this kind of thing, the the key person to read is a guy called Tom Davies, uh, who was at Birmingham, who's an who's probably you know the authority on this. I mean, it's is it's, that the authority on it as a nonsense? No, no, no. The authority on it as a historical discipline, as a historical discipline. So, so, so in terms right, of the history of graphology, I mean, it's the, the so, so no. I mean, what we're doing is we're saying the science of it is not is nonsense. No, no, no. The the gra graphology graphology is. A, is an exact science. It is used by the FBI in a really serious way, and they use it to find serial killers and to yep. track codes. That is incredibly serious. What you find is that the application of it yep. to historical figures, to historical figures, yeah, or yeah. to literary figures, where Henry VIII was a you know a mad bastard, you know, yeah. no surprise there. Yeah. Um, you know, well, his he must have been fat. Is utter nonsense. But <laughs> yeah. you know, there, are, there there is a science behind it that you can tell whether somebody has been drinking, is uh, is uh, is taking drugs. It, you can tell the sex or the age of people by their handedness, by their by their handwriting. Yeah, left left handedness. Um, and there, you know, it's it's it really is an an important science, but it has been applied in the most horrific ways. Yeah. And Tom Davies is the is the kind of the leading authority on the application of this to to sort of serious literary and historical scholarship. Right. But what I've got here, uh, one of the things that we did in that masterclass was we read a letter. We read a letter from Henry VIII to Anne Boleyn. And one of the things with Henry is that Henry was more or less allergic to paperwork. Um, he would, would almost always use a secretary uh, for any of his writing. There are a handful of letters that he wrote in his own hand. Uh, there's a, there are some letters to Wolsey, so his chief minister in the first part of his reign before Cromwell uh, takes over uh, in the th in the 1530s, and uh, all almost all of his letters to Anne Boleyn, uh, which I think is 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 really revealing. Um, so what we did was we we had a go at paleography and we went through one one of his letters. One of the questions from an audience member, so one of the participants, was what about what can we tell about his personality? Uh, from the from the letter, so it got me thinking about graphology, and I've got a book here, uh, handwriting of the famous and infamous uh, by Sheila Lowe, which goes through all sorts of people, uh, the famous American serial killer Ted Bundy, Elizabeth I, Charles Dickens, Kennedy, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, Abraham Lincoln, all all sorts of all sorts of people, but it's got an example of 
uh, a letter uh, from Henry VIII, uh, which I think is, yes, it is to Wolsey, so mine own good cardinal um, here. And I just wanted to read you some of the uh, analysis of it here uh, in this book. So a personality overview. Henry's handwriting emphasises vigorous movement with its moderately large overall size in a tight, compact picture of space, the mark of a busy person who crowded as many activities into each day as possible. There's a certain capricious quality to the changeable slant, size and baseline, while weakness is not inferred in as much as he would not allow himself to be pushed around. The evidence indicates that Henry would certainly have changed his mind if and when presented with more attractive possibilities. And then it goes up physical drives, the blotchy, muddy quality cannot be explained simply by the writing instruments of the day, as most of the writing has at least moderate clarity. Instead, it reveals the uninhibited indulgence of the writer's baser urges. <laughs> These included Henry's need for food, sex, money, and material pursuits. I mean, it's utter, utter nonsense. This idea that it's that it's nothing to do with the instruments of the time or the kind of script that he's writing in, all of those sort of registers yeah. are incredibly important for under understanding this yeah so it, basically it's in that ex in that example in that example nonsense yeah, it is nonsense well uh i think that brings to an end our extra signature podcast yep. signatures number two very good. Do you know what? Actually, I, while I was just finishing up on my my chapter on um, on you, the signature, you practiced your signature. No, I practiced it left handed. Oh, so I was I, was, I did. Um, I was writing about Nelson who had his arm amputated, yes. and so he had to do his signature. So you have these amazing letters of like really important <laughs> state matters, but they look like they're signed by a six year old. So he gets his secretary to to dictate well, it. Show me your and, show um, me your signature with your left handed. Unbelievably bad. I'll have a go um, as well. Yeah. Okay. Here we are. Uh, yeah, I look like a, a very unwell six-year-old. Oh my god! It's Isn't it so, so difficult? difficult? And to do it with any kind of elan or excitement uh, doesn't work. So I'm going to do my proper signature underneath look at it. That. that is nuts. Oh, yours is actually quite neat. Well, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Well, it's actually not much better than my signature normally. I have a, I have absolutely atrocious handwriting. That's sort of like a, a sort of dyslexic spider on, on sort of acid and. Vodka. I mean, so mine actually hasn't come out too badly. It felt terrible. But have you noticed what's wrong with my dots on my eyes? They're lines. They're like they're lines. They're yes. like they're an inch long. Half an inch long. That's a massive signature. Talking about grandiose signatures. It is a massive signature, it's, but so it's a statement. Sam. So I, hang on, I'm going to try and do <laughs> the it. Willis like, signature. You know when you sign your signature for a passport thing, yes, and you have to do it inside oh, no, the you'll box. You'll never be able to do that. Okay, I'm going to try and do this left-handed. Oh my God, you're testing me now. I, I do don't same. think I can. <laughs> I can't, no one would take me seriously. Ah, basically, look. is what I've discovered. Are you better? Yeah, because I'm doing it on my lap. And it's slightly. What did you do before? Did you do it on oh, your I face? I just did it. No, I just did it on the. <laughs> no, no, it's rubbish. I was all right when I was doing the bit. It's actually uh, the. It's all right when you're doing unjoined up letters, but when you're joining up, that's yep. when it becomes all wiggly. Actually, that's not too bad. You can just about make out. JLT. Yeah. But you know what? Well, the key thing there is that I there was in no way was I actually doing a signature. I was just desperately trying to write the letters of my name. Well, well done. Thank you. 
<laughs> everyone, try and write your signatures left-handed, and particularly try and do it in a tiny box, like we're supposed to do for your passports. Um, thank thank you for listening. Yes, absolutely. Um, and if you'd like to, um, if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, and tell all of your friends. We're on Twitter. You can follow me at Dr. Sam Willis. And, and you, you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow us at Histories of the Unexpected at Unexpected Pod. We are proud to be part of the excellent History Hit Network, home of Dan Snow's History Hit and other great shows. You can find out more about what we've got planned in the forthcoming months, show notes, video clips, photos of everything we discuss, and much, much more at historyhit.com forward slash unexpected. Bye. Goodbye. And Freud of the Reformation, as always. Ships, as always. Erasmus. Uh, Erasmus. Uh, Parliament. Um, Moulin Rouge. Blazing Saddles. Pope. Uh, Nutty Professor. Very good. Samuel Pepys. Yeah, always Samuel Pepys. And, always. and that poor man on the very crowded train from Glasgow. Yes, bless him. Bless him. Everyone, yes, just send your thoughts and good wishes to him. He's probably recovering still. Um, that was the history of the fart. Believe it or not, I loved that. That was good. <laughs> um Everyone, get in touch. Um, and we will see you soon next time. Bye. Bye. If you enjoy this podcast and you like learning about the past, check out my latest venture. It's called History Masterclass, and it's a new type of historical event where you can actually learn in person from the best historians around today in unique and stunning historical locations. You can find out more at thehistorymasterclass.com and follow on Facebook and Twitter at thehistorymc. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.